So you don't have to know a lot about basketball or be an NBA fan to know the name Monty Williams. I'm not an avid fan or follower of the league, but still, last year I started getting texts and emails from coaches and friends who would send you know, clips of a press conference or an interview or some coaching moment of the Phoenix Suns head coach, Monty Williams. It was really cool to hear him talk about calling his players up, not out, and to even hear his players use that phrase of calling up, which was the title of an article I wrote in 2018 and my first book uh, that I published back in 2019. Uh, what's been special for me though, is to be able to see a coach like Monty who has evolved, who has grown as a leader, um, for not only his players to see and experience that growth, but for the world to see it, for the world to see transformational leadership work. Uh, the Suns made it all the way to the finals last year where they lost in a heartbreaker to the Bucks. Uh, they have been this season the number one team, nearly all season. And Monty uh, was also the all-star coach. Uh, to see a coach who treats his players with love and respect while striving for excellence on the court uh, and for an NBA championship, that's really special. And as I've gotten to know him since last summer, even spend uh, some short time out there in Phoenix, it's been great to realize he's the real deal. It's not a facade. His humility is real. His heart is truly that of a transformational leader. And now we are excited to have him on the Coaching Culture Podcast. So welcome to any new listeners. My name is JP Nurbin, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. On this podcast, we discuss practical tools and strategies to build your culture, as well as the real challenges of leadership. In addition to this podcast, I'm the founder of TOC Culture Consulting, which provides coaching for coaches through our mentorship program, online courses, and community. You can learn more at tocculture.com, where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter to get the notes to this episode and every episode of the podcast. Now, that's enough from me. Let's get right into part one of our conversation with Monty Williams. Monty, we are excited to have you on the podcast today. No doubt, it's cool that you are currently one of the biggest names in coaching and your team is the number one team in the NBA. Um, but what makes this special for Nate and I is we get to talk to somebody that we admire, admire as a person and a leader. You started to blow up the world of coaching in last year's NBA playoffs. I took notice and I've been fortunate to get to know you better these last six months and to learn how you truly are a man who strives to live his faith, uh, to make an impact uh, on his players' lives, and to build an incredible culture, all while pursuing an NBA championship. So thank you uh, for making time in your busy schedule to talk with Nate and I today. I appreciate that, JP, but you know, you and I both know that. God makes us look way better than, than we deserve. And, and um, I've always said this about my life and, and especially my career. Uh, God knocks the ball out of the park and I get to run the bases. And um, if I'm really being honest about the base running part, it, there's some stumbling and falling down and, and uh, a lot of people praying that you just make it to first base. You know what I mean? And, and the Lord in his goodness and kindness. Um, he allows for us to, you know, do more than we could do on our own. And um, you know, that's always been my, well, I can't say always been my story. I think early on, I thought it was me, 
and, and really prideful in that. And, and the longer that I've lived and coached and, and been a husband and father, you realize how good the Lord is and how he enables you uh, to do uh, what you need to do on your assignment. I want to ask you real quick about that because it's something I struggled earlier in my days as an athlete and then as a coach was my willingness or was it right for me to kind of share my faith, you know, and being public and transparent around that. I think we're sometimes afraid to offend or afraid to share things that might create obstacles in our relationship with, with people. So, and I'm just curious from your perspective, why is it so important for you uh, not obviously just on this podcast, but anytime I hear you talk, it really does come back to your relationship with with Christ and and your your faith. You're very very transparent about that. And I'm just curious from your perspective why that's so important. You know, JP, I never I never thought about it. You know what I mean? I, I've it was always um, as I've grown, I, I would imagine, and, and matured to a degree in the Lord. I realize. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that man's heart is wicked, you know, above all things. And then last time I checked, you know, I'm a man, you know, and so I know that there's nothing good that dwells in me. And if there's anything that is good in me that is broadcasted to my wife, my kids or people at work or the public, it has to be the Lord, you know. And, you know, we see that in the life of, of many, many people that God or lives of many, many people that God used in the Bible. Um, they, they were, you know, fearful like Gideon or had many, many flaws in their, in their character like David. And, 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 you know, these are people in the Bible, you know what I'm saying? And, and God used them in a mighty, mighty way. And in the end, they always gave glory to God, you know? And so I, I never thought much about it. Um, earlier I, I think i fell into the trap of thinking that i had to say something about god after a, in a, a sports event because it was the flavor of the month and that's what a lot of athletes did as i got older and began to contemplate my walk with the lord i realized that i wasn't you know being straightforward and, and honest about where I was and, and I was playing a game. And as I dove into scripture and, and began to really connect with a, a man named Bill Gebhardt, who's a pastor at a fellowship Bible church in, in Metairie, Louisiana, he really challenged me on the things I said and how uh, prideful I could look when I would say certain things after a game or whatever. And it made me think, you know, like, okay, what am I really saying? And so for me, as I dove into the scriptures, you, you know, you realize who you are, you know who you are in part. And I guess that made me, you know, feel more free to talk about the Lord, you know, because I knew like how fearful I am on the sidelines when it, it's a tight game or how inadequate I am compared to a, a Popovich or a Nate McMillan or Doc Rivers. you like, like I've coached under those guys and I know how much better they are than me. And here God is allowing me to do what I do. And I'm like, hold up, man, I'm not like those guys. <laughs> and yet God is doing things in my life that I couldn't do on my own. So 
I didn't I didn't really think much about it, JP. Um, especially this part of my career early on, I did it just because I thought it was what I was supposed to do, even though it was somewhat superficial and fake. Now it's just it just comes from I I, I hope a place of, of humility where I just know like I'm not all that and God is you know, made me look much, much better than I deserve. Well, and, and I think when I first remember hearing you speak, I mean, just last year on TV, you, you, you were instantly kind of really bringing it back, your success going to the finals to, you know, to God. And I felt that was impactful <clears throat> for me to hear that because I think the reality of coaching is that so often we get our value. Oh, money's a good coach, or I'm a good, I'm a good at this, or I'm, I'm JP's a good coach based upon our team's performance. And it was a really healthy reminder for us that you don't see your value and self-worth in a day and your run in the playoffs, right? You, 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 it's bigger than that, you know? And uh, so I, I really admire that. And so I think one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about too, is you talk about your evolution, how it's not always the case. And I was curious about your time as a player. You left, a, you were playing in the NBA. You had a really great career there. You go into coaching. Why do you go into coaching? You know, why do you go from being a player to a coach? What was that purpose? Yeah. And has that evolved over the years? Yeah. I, I think for me, JP, it was um, at the time, I didn't know what to do. You know, I had a pretty significant injury with my knee. And um, Dr. Andrews down in Birmingham was like, my, you know, we can't do anything for this type of injury. And I called my wife at the time. And then the next phone call I made was to pop uh, in San Antonio. And I just said, pop, you know, I'm, they say I'm done, you know, and I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know what I'm going to do if I should take a year. You know, I didn't know. And he knew that we were building a house in San Antonio because we wanted to make that our base. And so he said, hey, you're coming here anyway. Why don't you just come by the practice site and spend some time with us and see if you like it? And that was the initial entry into coaching for me. And all I did, JP, was go to practice every day, take notes, and I'd go home. I'd get there before practice started, and I'd leave right when practice ended. And they'd be looking for me. Like, where'd mine go? And I did that for about three or four months. And what I saw was, you know, one, somebody that I loved and admired and popped. And he had had such an impact on me as a man, as a player. Um, and I was starting to see a bit of servant leadership in, in his coaching. And I, I was like, look, I, you know, I could waste some money on a business. You know, I could go fish for a year or go play golf for a year. Um, but he had a really uh, straightforward conversation with me. He was like, listen, you weren't an all-star and you don't have a big name. And he told me a few other things that I'll just hold on to. But he was like, if you're going to get into this, you need to get into it now or people are going to forget about you. And so that was like my wake up call. You know, I was like, wow, better <laughs> fishing's off the off the uh, 
the list and, and, you know, I could have wasted a few thousand dollars on golf clubs, you know, and riding around the country playing really nice courses. I just jumped right in and they allowed me to start out as an intern and they created a position for me. And what they allowed for me to do was just see what a coaching day looked like. And I just stayed with it to a degree and made some mistakes along the way. And, you know, there were times where I forgot to come to the gym because I just didn't know that's what I was supposed to do. And I'll never forget Brett Brown calling me out one day. I was supposed to be at the gym and I just didn't know. And Brett called me at home and he had, you know, Brett is from Boston. He's from like the Northeast. And then he spent 18 years in Australia. So you can imagine his accent. And he just kind of lays into me one day. He's like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm at home. He's like, well, why aren't you here? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, anytime we're here, you're here. And I began to understand what a coaching day looked like, you know? And so that was my introduction. That, that was it. it. There wasn't like, you know, when I was playing, I knew I was going to be a coach type thing. It, it was the furthest, furthest thing from my mind. I, I got intro, introduced to it just because I was going to be in, in the city of San Antonio. And then um, they just opened the door for me to, to learn. And that was how I got in. There wasn't like some pathway for me like a lot of guys. Because I didn't, you know, JP, I don't fit the coaching mold. I wasn't a point guard. I wasn't an all-star and I didn't have this crazy big name as a player. You know, I was known as a solid guy who people just loved to have on their team because I knew how to play, but no one looked at me as a coach. Like there's no one, not one of my teammates. The only guy that saw me as a coach was Doc Rivers and probably Pop because that's why he entered, you know, he asked me to do it. But Doc told me a long time ago, he's like, Ma, you're going to be a coach one day. And I, I was like, dude, you're crazy. <laughs> so that that's a long-winded version of how I got introduced to it all. Honey, I wonder if I could follow up a little bit on that relationship with Pop. And I know, you know, just looking through some of your interviews and kind of preparing for today that there's a number of coaches or guys that you played with um, that have poured into you and continue to, even though they're competitors. You mentioned Nate and Doc and some of these guys that are still in the league, obviously, and and that you guys are both competitors, but also kind of supportive of one another. And um, I think as a, as a high school coach, I'm a high school girls basketball coach in Iowa. I think a lot of times we think of our relationships in terms of the life cycle of an athlete, you know, ends with graduation. And yet here's that relationship with Popovich. And I know, you know, there's a lot of articles that have been written about the things that you've learned from former players after they've left your program that have helped you become a better coach and how some of those relationships continue to this day. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that approach, because I think in some ways it's not natural for us always to think I'm coaching a kid when they're 17, 18 or, you know, young adults in your situation. And yet 10 years later, you know, I have an opportunity to still invest in their life, even if they don't necessarily offer me anything in return. Sure. I mean, I, I think it started for me, Nate, when um, I was in high school. Um, my high school coach, his name is Taft Hickman, and I went to an inner city high school in PG County, Maryland, and Coach Hickman was the guy for all of us 
You know, he was the one who not only made us play soccer or run cross country to get ready for basketball. He was the guy that was taking us home after workouts. He was the guy that was taking us to McDonald's, you know, to make sure we all had something to eat. He was also the guy who was the AD at our school. And if he caught anybody walking the hallway and not in class, like you were going to catch it, you know, and he became for me, um, my mother couldn't afford to send me to camp. And so he figured out ways for me to work camp so that I could go. And then as I started to get better and people were inviting me to camps, he was the one taking. And so that relationship, um, coach player relationship began to be formed in my mind that he was more than a, a guy who facilitated a practice or taught X's and O's or, you know, made us do defensive slides with bricks in our hands that because he did that when I was in high school, he was also um, an authority figure. A lot of people throw the word father figure around. I think sometimes we throw that around too loosely. Um, he had some fatherly qualities that he, um, you know, enforced on me at times, but I, I understood authority at an early age because of people like Coach Hickman. And so when I got to college and I got to the pros, it wasn't a big deal for me to transfer that, that relationship and that, that kind of um, back and forth between, my co between all the coaches that I've had that have poured into me because it started in, in high school. And even before that, uh, my, my football coach, Jim Westbrook, I was 10 years old. He was, you know, the first person to realize that I could throw and catch. And, you know, he was the guy who, who uh, invited me to church. Uh, I was 10 years old and I just moved to PG County with my mother and, and my, my little league football coach invited me and my mom to church. And that, that changed my life. Um, that's where I got saved. And, and, you know, to this day, I'm still in touch with both of those men. Uh, coach Hickman will text me after a game and, you know, no matter what it is, he won't tell me how to coach, but he'll give me encouragement on like, okay, keep, keep focused on this, keep focused on that. He's a huge part of my life. So when I, when I was around coaches like Pop and, and Nate and Doc and, and Billy Donovan, it was easy for me to look up to them and, be, and still be led by them because of how I was brought in. And now I'm in somewhat of a position where I'm talking to younger coaches and, and you know, sharing some of my experiences. And I, I typically do it a bit differently. I, I don't tell a guy, do this, do that. I typically teach out of my failures. Because um, I've found that it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a way that we bond. Because sometimes guys look at me like I'm like, <laughs> like I've done something, you know. And I tend to, you know, bring them back down to earth by talking to them about some of my failures. And it's amazing to see their eyes kind of widen or their jaw drop when I tell them some of the things I did or choices I made. But when I'm, I'm vulnerable in those situations, it, it opens the door for us to really talk. And you'd be amazed at what guys will tell you, you know, after I share with them, like, hey, this is what I did. This is what I'm dealing with. And they're like, man, you too? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think if I'm answering your question correctly, 
it started for me with those two guys. You know, Coach Westbrook was my football coach and, and Taft Hickman was uh, my high school coach and still is a mentor for me today. You had some great, like you said, authority figures, mentors, role models in your life. But I think there's the, the reality of coaching is when you have to move over that chair from assistant coach to head coach, <laughs> nothing, nothing prepares you for that moment, you know? And so what was that, what was challenging about that experience when you finally became a head coach in new Orleans? I think the thing that um, I equated to is when you first get into the NBA as a player, like everything is moving so fast on the floor. I mean, the guys are bigger, stronger, um, rougher. The locker room is totally different. I mean, the conversations in the locker room are like pretty black and white and some days pretty raw, you know, and you're just like, holy smokes, man. And you're dealing with men, you know, you're not dealing with, at least when I came into the league, I was the youngest on the team and I was 22. The older guys were in their 30s, mid-30s. Some of them were close to 40 years old. Um, and every, the thing I'd say is every, everything was moving so fast as a player. Well, as a coach, it was the same way. Um, I went from being an assistant and, you know, pretty much taking care of <clears throat> my head coach at the time, who was Nate McMillan, and I had about three or four players in my stable. That was it. And just like that, I went <clears throat> from that role to being a head coach. All of a sudden, I'm dealing with all of the players, agents, media, owner, management, PR, sponsorship group, like everybody. And in a city like New Orleans, I'm, I'm building relationships with the Saints. Um, you know, I'm all over town. You know, we're trying to raise the awareness of our team so they had me doing all kinds of stuff and so my world totally changed and I'll never forget my wife at the time she said one of the kids would um you know I think it was my oldest came up to her and said hey uh, ma what is daddy okay and I was like what do you mean she said well she walked in there and she saw you like looking just staring at your laptop I was watching film, but it was really watching me because I was I was so worn out because of how my life had changed so quick. And it, everything just moved so fast, JP and Nate. It was just like it didn't slow down for me until about four or five months into the season where I began to get my bearings, you know, as to what I had to do every single day. And I was doing media three times a day. I was trying to figure out like why they would ask me certain questions every single day. And then I'm dealing with players and managing personalities and expectations. And so it's a totally different world. It's, it's a few inches over, but until you do it, you just can't fathom what it's like. Um, and, and what I told, you know, people would ask me that question. I said, the only thing I could say is, I'm ready for what I'm not ready for, you know, like it, that's how it is. I mean, you just don't, people can tell you what it's like, but until you do it, you just can't even explain it. And the cool part is I've, you know, I'm 
really good friends with Willie Green, who's head coach in New Orleans and, and just a solid brother that I've, I, I just love to death. And <laughs> this year is his first year doing it. And he, he and I talked on the phone and he's just like, my man, oh my goodness, man. And I'm like, I said, Willie, if I told you everything you were going to go through, it still wouldn't matter, bro. Like you just have to go through it and you're just ready for what you're not ready for. I mean, you've done everything up until this point. The Lord has opened this door for you, man. You'll be fine. You just got to get used to all the stuff that you're doing every day. And then, you you know, I, I fast forward to where I am now. A lot of the stuff that I tried to do as a rookie coach and, and the first time as a coach in New Orleans, I don't even mess with it now. I delegate way more than I ever did um, in New Orleans. Media stuff, dealing with players on, on things that really don't matter. Like I, I, I typically delegate a ton of that stuff to, to the guys that I trust on our staff. I'm curious to ask you this question. Uh, you and I have something in common in that uh, we've lost our job at one point as a head coach. <laughs> and, you know, JP and I work with a number of coaches, you know, that at some point or another, you know, are going to go through that experience. And I think that's probably another one that, you know, it's hard to say, here's how you get ready, you know, for a season when you're on the brink, so to speak. But having gone through that, and obviously now being on the other side of it with a second opportunity here, but how do you, how did you handle, you know, losing your job, especially after a fairly successful run there, you showed a lot of improvement, um, but it's hard, right? It's hard at any level, you know, when you're really invested in it, how'd you get through that? It, it was tough at first, um, internal, internally more than I expressed. Um, I felt a great deal of rejection. Um, that was the, the feeling that I just, it was tangible. You know, we, we had, in my mind, we had done some things in New Orleans that I felt like uh, were moving in a good place. And so when I, I had the conversation with my authorities there and they told me, hey, we're going to go in a different direction. I, I just felt like <laughs> you, you felt like this um, not only rejection, but some somewhat of a betrayal, you know what I mean? Because you're in the, the dog fight with these people and then they just decide to go a different direction after you make the playoffs and all of that. But this is going to sound weird and religious. I got in my truck and I, I called my wife and I said, Hey honey, I, I, I got fired today. And, and she's like, what? <laughs> and she was, she was so upset and she knew right away it was midday, actually early morning. Um, or late morning, she knew right away to go get the kids out of school. And so her mind went right to like, you know, putting out fires because she didn't want the kids to have to deal with it at school with social media. But right when I, I, I called her and then I called the staff and I was on my way home, um, all I could think about was Matthew 633. Uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And if, I, if I'm being as honest as I can be, I knew that there were areas of my coaching that did not line up with that. And, and, and that was, for me, the foundation of what I wanted to do as a coach. And so I know it was the Lord putting it on my heart, like, this is an opportunity for you to be straight. 
You know, you can sit here and blame the organization. You can sit here and listen to everybody say, hey, you got a raw deal. But the reality is you didn't put me first in the areas that I needed to be first. And, and I felt that strongly on my heart. And so did I feel the rejection? Yeah. Did I feel like betrayed? I did. But I also had to face the, 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 the black and white truth that I was known as this, you know, Christian coach, but there were certain areas of my coaching of my style that didn't line up and I had to face that. And it allowed for me to not play the blame game. It allowed for me to at least try not to say something stupid in the media because I was really focused on that during that time. And I got home, my wife had uh, met me at the door and then she ran out to grab the kids. And then my mentor, Pastor Bill came over to the house and we just sat there and talked. And it really helped me to have people that love me right there, but to also have my wife at the time and my mentor, people, two people that I knew would not let me off the hook, you know? And what ended up happening was about 30 minutes into that, a bunch of cameras showed up at my house. And the only thing I knew to do or say was somewhat along the lines of gratitude. Because I knew at that, that time, I dealt with the media enough, enough to know that this could go bad. <laughs> this, this could go really, really bad. And because, you know, I think because of what the Lord did that day on that drive home by putting Matthew 6.33 on my heart, which is one of my anchor verses, it allowed for me to think of that, that firing in a different way. And so I didn't want to say anything stupid. I hurt and I did have some things on my heart that I wanted to say. I wanted to lash out and I wanted to, you know, show people where the bones were buried because I knew. But the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath, you know, and, and the Bible also talks about us being salt and light. And I had two great examples in that house at that moment, my wife and my mentor, Pastor Bill and my wife, Ingrid, who were unbelievable examples of um, grace under fire. And that wasn't my way, Nate. Like, I, I, I'm contrary to what you guys think and what many people may think of me. Like, I can make a librarian scream. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I have that ability. And in that moment, um, because of maybe because I was so broken and maybe because I was so hurt. The only thing that, that I wanted to do or could do at the time was just say thank you for the opportunity. And um, we were out of that house and gone in two weeks. And um, that was it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I can relate to a lot of those feelings of, you know, there's, there's anger and there's some embarrassment and there's, you know, sometimes a bit of shame that you let people down and you, you know, that feeling that, man, maybe I wasn't good enough, you know, and you start those narratives, you know, and I remember when I got let go, um, one of my mentors, Will Ray, when he was fired in at the college level, talked to Hubie Brown and Hubie had told him when you get fired. And of course, Hubie had been fired a few times. Right. And he said, you're either totally surprised or you're totally relieved. And in my situation, you know, I, I felt 
relief. Like it was sort of this peace that just sort of washed over me that all these conflicts and all this fighting was was over. But the other thing that Hubie said, and I'd be curious to get your perspective on this, is that you have to be careful that the bitterness and the anger toward the situation doesn't taint your perspective of the profession. And I think that's something that's interesting about your journey is that, you know, we, JP and I have worked with coaches that have gone through something like that and they're just done, you know, and good people and good men and good mentors are out of coaching because they couldn't get through that. And so I just wonder, you know, over the course of time, it looks like now you've looked at that as a reframe that in a way that it's benefited you now, you know, where you're at in Phoenix, but how would you coach a coach in that situation, you know, having to deal with some of those kind of emotions? It's a tough one because I, to be honest with you, I was too. Um, I think if at the right time had something else come my way, I probably would have looked at it in reference to another vocation. I probably would have taken a serious look at it just because of the rejection of the betrayal of the narrative that you create in your mind. Because as coaches, we put so much into the job. We put so much into uh, film study and X's and O's. And, you know, we're the ones that hide all the stories that we know, like if the public knew this, they'd be like this, right? Like we're the ones that are somewhat of gatekeepers for the program, gatekeepers for the high school, gatekeepers for whatever. And then when you get fired, there's this like, really? Like, so I did all this and none of that matters now? I think as leaders, when we find our identity in that position, when we find our identity in what the public says about us or what the players say about us, we set ourselves up for that kind of emotional roller coaster. And, and what I'm learning, and I'm not saying I'm there yet, but when my identity is in Christ, then there's a different heart set and mindset there, if you get what I'm saying. Like, if I know that I'm on assignment, if I know that God is sovereign, if I know that nothing surprises him, then if I, I get fired or I get don't win the championship or I don't get what I want, doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But if I can if I can remember to to to, you know, that God is in control and he he understands way better than I do what was happening, what happened, and what's coming, <laughs> right? It gives you some peace, not, not total peace because we're human and we're, and we're flawed and broken. But I've I found that when I, when I put my identity in the things that are fleeting, you know what I'm saying? Like these kinds of jobs, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm watching in the NBA right now, we got championship coaches who are under fire. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, you know, it just lets you know how fragile it is. The one thing that isn't is my identity in Christ. And I, again, I, I stress that I'm not totally there yet, but it is something that comes up on my heart that I'm grateful for some of the times that I didn't have success because had I had that success, my identity would have been in that through 
being fired and some of the failures I've had, it's it's forced me to understand that my identity is in Christ and that will never change. All right, we're going to take a break in our conversation with Monty. Monty's personal example, I have to say, it just has inspired me, not just as a leader, but as a Christian. And I really greatly appreciate him. However, I, I totally get that many of our listeners are not Christian believers, uh, but regardless of your faith background or, or your worldview, I hope you learn from his example, from his story, and, and the way that he chooses to lead. Finding your identity and self-worth in coaching, it's, it's not healthy. Um, it's not healthy at all. Uh, we always try to keep uh, our episodes in a digestible size under 30 minutes. Uh, but money was so generous with his time and there's so much good stuff here. That's not going to be the case, obviously, with this episode or next episode. But still, you aren't going to want to miss out on part two of our conversation with Monty. So please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And also, don't forget to check out TOCculture.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter there. Thanks for listening in to the Coaching Culture Podcast.